Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. So uh, again, good morning. If I've not met you, my name is David. I'm the lead pastor here at Apostles. And um, I did just want to give you a heads up. So I'm really excited. So this morning, our kids are going to be learning about Psalm 139. We're focused on 146, but they're going to be focused on 139 because uh, part of what they've been working on as we've been going through Christ in the Psalms is preparing to lead us in a worship and praise song next Sunday during the service based on Psalm 139. So our worship team has been going back periodically to work with them and teach them a song. They've been practicing it. Parents, uh, you should have been getting a video and an email. If you haven't been practicing at home, I encourage you to practice that at home so your kids feel comfortable and confident because we're going to have them come and lead us from the front uh, in a song uh, based on Psalm 139. So I'm excited for our kids uh, to lead us in worship next week. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 146. You know, we're continuing in this series called Christ in the Psalms. We'll actually wrap that up next week with Psalm 139. So a little bit out of order. We're going to actually be in 146 this morning. If you want to grab a Bible or open up on your Bible app to Psalm 146, we're going to look at how we see the Lord Jesus here, which has been our goal as we've been going through the Psalms. <clears throat> and in particular, um, I feel like this is a very timely psalm uh, for us in, in kind of our uh, cultural moment and, and our, our moments, because at the end of the day next Tuesday, uh, which is November 8th, many of us, so a week from, from Tuesday, my hope is many of us will have voted um, and if you haven't already voted, I would encourage you to vote in the midterm elections. Um, and here's what I would also guess. I would guess that many of us will vote, and I would guess that not everyone in this room will vote the same way, right? And in fact, I actually hope that not everyone in this room uh, will vote the same way. And I, I'm going to share a little bit uh, that I think will help you understand why that's a hope that I have. But as we gather this morning, I just want to recognize that we, we actually represent a diverse array of views and opinions in the political realm. Uh, and if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, if we're not thoughtful about that, um, especially because of our cultural moment and the pressures that exist in our society, that could actually work to divide us. Those differences could become divisions. Um, we are experiencing rapid moral change in our culture. We all see that and feel that. Uh, moral positions that were accepted kind of generally in our society just years ago now have completely uh, shifted. Uh, our culture feels more polarized maybe than it ever has, certainly that I remember in my lifetime, more hostile. And we in the church feel that. And I would say we in the church feel that acutely, maybe even more than just uh, in the general society. And the reason I say that is we experience that more because we actually share a foundational unity that these pressures are trying to rip apart. And we, we feel that. We experience that. Um, but there is something underneath it all that, that bonds us together that's foundational and that is transcendent. 
And so our unity is rooted in that. And so when we look at Psalm 146 this morning, I want us to kind of consider, again, this cultural moment and where we are that we're going to be voting, uh, if you haven't already, in the midterm elections coming up next week. And what I want to ask as we look at Psalm 146 is this question. How do we as the church remain faithful and unified amidst ongoing political division and increasing polarization? That's the question I want us to consider this morning. How do we as the church remain faithful and unified amidst ongoing political division and increasing polarization? And I I really believe Psalm 146 can help us answer that question. So look at Psalm 146 with me if you've got it open in front of you. Uh, Look down at verse 3. This is why I think this psalm is so timely. This is what it says. It says, put not your trust in princes. That's people in government, people in authority over you, right? And a son of man, it says, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So what we get here in the midst of a psalm of praise is this admonition. The psalmist feels compelled to say these words here. So Praise God, followed by praising God on the other. But right here in the middle, kind of in this sandwich of praise, there's this interesting comment. Put not your trust in princes. Why? Because as those who are created to worship, we are always facing the temptation to worship something other than God. And this psalm is highlighting the temptation, the very real temptation we feel, especially in turbulent times, to put our trust in political leaders and governments and power. So, if not in princes, put not your trust in princes, where are we supposed to put our trust? Psalm 146 begins with the answer to that question. Praise the Lord, it begins. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So if you look in your translation, you might notice that the word Lord in each instance in this psalm, and it appears numerous times, is actually all caps. Do you guys see that in your translation? So what that's telling you is if you were to look at the Hebrew, what you would see is the word Yahweh, or in the first instance, the first one, Yah, which is an abbreviated form of Yahweh. Yahweh is the one we praise. Yahweh is the one who's captured our soul. Yahweh is the one we praise and sing praises to again and again and again. In other words, it's not just any God. It's our God, the one true God. It is Yahweh that we praise and worship, the God who has revealed himself to us as the great I am, the God who said he is and always will be and always has been. That God is the God that we praise, the God who is over and above all, All human history and governments, Yahweh is the one who deserves our praise. It's interesting, in the psalm, it says in verse 6, this is the God, this Yahweh is the one who has done what? Made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in it. He's the creator and sustainer of reality. That's Yahweh. Uh, If there's any other questions about who he is, verse 10, cements it. Who is he? He is the one who reigns forever. Yahweh reigns forever for all generations, it says. And so God here is perceived to be our eternal 
king. The God who, in other words, he, he's never up for re-election, right? This God reigns now and forever. He always has, he is, and he will be our king. And so Psalm 146 kind of holds this vision that really, I think, is built off of the revealed truth of God and his commandments. Deuteronomy 5, 7. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, no other princes before me. So in other words, Psalm 146 is declaring there is nothing in the world, nothing in our lives, and no one that should come close to our allegiance to Yahweh, to this God who alone is God, who is our true king. He alone is actually worthy of our trust. So first, what Psalm 146 is telling us is to trust in the Lord. But then it goes on uh, from there. Look at verse five. Blessed are those who, whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. We've already looked at that. Seven, it says he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. He's the sustainer, again, of his creation. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. He he works for justice, in other words. It's interesting, Jesus himself preached almost this exact message, didn't he? We read from Luke chapter 4. Where Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads from Luke chapter, uh, reads from Isaiah, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, almost, almost the same gospel message that we find here at the heart of Psalm 146. In other words, this is a messianic prophecy. This psalm is pointing very clearly to Jesus. It's looking forward to Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. This is why Jesus came. This is who God is, and this is who God has always been, whether we look in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. He is the God who saves. So we believe that as followers of Jesus. We believe in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that through faith in God's Son, we are set free. We are captives who have been set free from sin and death, that we've had our spiritual eyes opened, that in Christ we're rich beyond measure, that we have peace and joy and healing and hope in Jesus, and that we can actually change, that this, this life that we have in God transforms us, that through his Holy Spirit we can overcome the oppressive power of sin and death and evil in the world and in our own hearts. Praise God. That's the gospel. And it's right here in Psalm 146. So what we have here is we have an answer to our question, right? How does the church remain faithful and unified amidst political division and increasing polarization? It remains unified in the unity and in the worship of God and the proclamation and belief in his gospel, God and gospel. That's how we stay unified. That's what the basis of our unity is. It's the Lord and his gospel. In other words, what we're not unified by is our shared politics. We are not shared, uh, unified by our shared positions or even our shared objectives. What we are unified by is our life together in Christ, God and his gospel. Our unity is not 
uh, as so often it's presented in the world about just getting along together. Uh, Our unity is not about tolerance or unity for the sake of unity. Our unity is found in God and the gospel. And it's our unity in God and the gospel that helps reveal God and the gospel to the world. So that's a beautiful and powerful thing. That's what makes division, on the other hand, so tragic. Such a violence against God and the gospel. And so how we navigate our political differences is really about how we live into our divine calling to to image Christ to the world. It's why Jesus prays in John 17, I pray that they, that is the church, may be one, just as you and I, Father, are one. It's why Paul, hearing about division in the Corinthian church, his question is, is Christ divided? What's behind his question? An image of the body of Christ. If we're divided, how can we even say that? It's, it's like ripping the literal body of Jesus apart. That's what he says. Is Christ divided? It misrepresents the truth of Jesus when we live in division. And so I think one of the questions that we're asked as we look at Psalm 146, as we look at the gospel together, is do we have that kind of perspective, that this oneness that we have in Christ is that remarkable, that it's that uh, sacred, that it's that absolutely necessary to our life? in this world, that it's that important. Our unity is supposed to show what God is like. This self-giving God who loves us at great cost to himself, moves us to live in self-denying love, to love one another and make that love visible to a dying and hurting world. So, when we're united around this God and this gospel, this message, um, it has implications. It has implications for how we live and, and how we live our life together and how we engage with our society and how we vote. So, for example, when we believe this gospel of Jesus Christ, we come to an understanding uh, that there are things in this world and in life that are not in line with the gospel. So, you know, greed, for example, or, or adultery, or... Uh, Gossip. These kinds of things are not in line with the truth of the gospel. They're not in line with God's character. They're not in line with his word. We discover new things that are. We discover when we come into faith in Christ that, wow, we actually need each other. And so gathering together weekly is not just a nice thing that we do when it's convenient, but it's, as Eric said last week, our life depends on it. That being together is critical and that we gather here to worship together, to pray, to study God's word, and to share this holy meal because it's essential to our life in God. And so that's what unifies us. That's what makes us who we are as a church, God and his gospel. Now, with this foundation, we can actually live in unity as we engage politically as well, not just as we engage with one another, but as we engage with the world. So, for example, God and his gospel make it clear that abortion is a sin. Right? Mark 12, 31, for example, teaches that we must love our neighbor. Exodus 20, 13 prohibits murder. Psalm 139 and Jeremiah 1, just a couple of examples, describe the image-bearing beauty of all human life, including the child in the womb. The incarnation itself 
It's not just like picking off a few verses. The the incarnation itself, the, the cross, the resurrection, all point to the precious gift of life that comes from God, the giver of life. And so what that means is that uh, being an advocate for abortion in any form is antithetical to God and the gospel. Let me just say that again. Advocating for abortion, it is antithetical to God and the gospel, which is why to be a member of his church is by default to be against abortion. There's no gray area in there. Not because we advocate from a particular political persuasion, but because we take God and his gospel seriously. And so it has implications. Abortion cannot be supported or promoted or expanded by the votes of Christians. Full stop. So let me just say there as your pastor a couple of things. First, if that's difficult for you to kind of come to terms with, that specific area, that's just one example, but if that specific area is difficult, difficult for you to come to terms with or you have questions, right, about how do we come to that conclusion uh, based on what the Bible teaches, I would love to talk to you about that, okay? So please, this is an invitation. Come and, and talk to me. We can sit down and talk through that and we can look at God's word together. On another note, if a past sin or wound in this area is a part of your story, I just want to encourage you also to come and talk to me Um, because the beauty and the power of the gospel uh, is that God promises forgiveness and healing. And so if, if what you need is to be reminded of God's grace, that it's sufficient for you because he loves you, come talk to me. So just a couple of pastoral notes, because I know that abortion, is, it's, a, it's a difficult, because it's not just a topic, it's not just an issue. This is real lives and real lives lost. Um, so so that just holding that out as an example, I think what, what I'm trying to say is that the bottom line for us as members of a representative republic, right, like we are in the United States, we as Christians have an obligation to use our vote for good. We have an obligation to that end, as is in line with God and his gospel. But we also have an obligation to remember that our vote won't save us. Don't put your trust in princes. It won't save us or the world. And so we we hold both of those things out. Our ultimate goal is not human politics. Our ultimate goal is not to look to princes. It's to look to God, our king, and to the gospel. And so he's our only hope, and our life should demonstrate that trust, that conviction. So with that foundation, here's what I would like to do. I would like to share some quick thoughts on how we as followers of Jesus with a foundation of God and the gospel can faithfully engage politically and maintain unity of the body. Um, And what I would encourage you to do, because I I won't be able to unpack these fully, um, is just to jot these down. I really want to encourage you just to write these down or capture them on your phone uh, you can snap a picture. That's not awkward. We're going to throw them, each one up here. And just take some time, maybe especially this week, just to consider some of these thoughts on how we can thoughtfully and faithfully engage politically. So here's the first, and I'm going to go quick. So the first one is, be careful about making important things into ultimate things. Be careful about making important things into ultimate things. When we are passionate about something, 
um, especially when it comes to the realm of politics, uh, we might be tempted to raise it to the level of gospel importance. It just keeps going up and up and up and up in our hearts and minds, uh, whether it actually is of gospel importance or not. And we're all tempted to do this. The best example of this uh, in the New Testament would be uh, food laws and circumcision. This is exactly what was happening. It kept kind of going pushed up, pushed up, pushed up. And Paul, why he so vehemently rejected it, is he said, you can't add anything to the gospel. You can't do it because it kills the gospel. It destroys the gospel. The gospel cannot be added to or taken away from. And so we have to be careful that we don't make important things, important things, into ultimate things. Second, faithful Christians can have reasonable disagreement about secondary and tertiary matters. So let me say that again. Faithful Christians can have reasonable disagreement about second and tertiary matters. So I, I didn't come up with this way of thinking about it. I got this from another pastor, but I just found it really helpful. So what, what do we mean when we say uh, secondary and tertiary matters? This is what he would say. He said secondary matters. So secondary matters are the things that would... Uh, that would be important but don't rise to the level of salvation, right? They're not gospel core issues, but they're important if we're going to actually live life together as the church in, in a local setting in particular, or maybe denominationally more expansively. Uh, so, for example, infant baptism, right? So infant baptism is an example because uh, if, if you're a part of apostles or you're part of an Anglican movement uh, church, it's going to be hard for you here if you fundamentally disagree with the doctrine of baptism, not that baptism is important or necessary for salvation, but that infant baptism as a mode of baptism is not a biblical perspective. You're going to have a hard time within this church reconciling that belief with what we do and how we live and what we believe. And so what that means is baptism is important, but the mode of baptism, adult or infant, is not a salvation issue. Right? Faithful Christians have believed both. So you might disagree with infant baptism and decide, well, I need to join a different church. Right? So that's, that's kind of secondary uh, matter. Tertiary matter is this. These are differences we can have and still function as a local church. So these are these are the, all the different views represented in this room that are kind of not rising to the level of secondary, uh, certainly not to gospel, but they're kind of at a third level. So in the New Testament, an example of this would be meat sacrificed to idols, right? And so some people had, a, as a matter of conscience, they couldn't eat that meat. Others, they could. And what does Paul encourage them to do? Work it out, basically, right? So so in other words, a modern example of this might be different positions or views on drinking, right? So there's probably a, a spectrum of views uh, about what is appropriate and godly and holy in terms of alcohol within our congregation. There's probably a diversity of views. It, it could be something more theological. So uh, there's a diversity of views, for example, on the role of ethnic Israel, in the life of the church and God's redemptive salvation plan. There's diversity uh, of views on particular manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We all believe in the person of the Holy Spirit and the works of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's something we agree on as a church. And in fact, I would say that's a gospel level issue. But the expressions of that, there's different views in this room. And that, that doesn't rise to the level of, of saying, okay, well, we can't do life together. Um, at least not for most of us. So so knowing, I think knowing those kind of categorical differences can help us navigate uh, what, uh, where to fit in our political differences, 
right? So the real question is, well, how do we figure out which category to put our different political differences in? Is it gospel level? Is it secondary? Is it tertiary? So what I would say, maybe just simply, is how we discern, uh, this is how we discern. We, we look to see what God's Word says. Um, we look to uh, the Holy Spirit through prayer. We listen to what He says. We read great books. We consult trusted friends and counselors and pastors. And in the end, we allow God to guide us by means of our conscience and His Word. So three, we're going to go faster now. Remember that government is a gift from God. Remember that government is a gift from God. Scripture exhorts us to pray for our leaders, 1 Timothy 2, 2. We should be praying for our mayor. We should be praying for our governor. We should be praying for our president, for our senators, for our school board members. We should be praying for those in government who are in authority over us. We're commanded to do so. We should remember that government is a gift from God, and we should thank him for his ordering of our society. Even bad government is better than no government, right? And so we need to pray and be thankful. And in normal circumstances, we should obey. We should obey our government. There are exceptions to that, and basically they boil down to this. We should obey the government unless the demands on us made by our government challenge our allegiance to God and are not in line with the gospel. That's the line for us as followers of Christ. And that's, you see that in Acts 5.29. The apostles are called uh, before um, the, uh, the authorities, and they say we, should, we have to obey God rather than man. That's, we, we're compelled to do so. So we're the same. Um, so disobedience, uh, there may be a place for that, or a rejection uh, of government authority, and it ranges from everything from trying to change laws to uh, nonviolent civil disobedience to maybe ultimately revolt if it came to that. So number four, exercise the privilege of changing laws and leaders. So this is a privilege we have in America. We get to vote. So I, I, I just want to encourage you, use your God-given right and your voice to vote. I'm not going to tell you, I will never tell you who to vote for. I will not do that because I'm convinced of what I'm telling you, that the gospel is my charge, to proclaim the truth and the grace of the gospel and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in the expressions of that and the con- your conscience to guide you in how you vote. But I will tell you, vote. You should vote. And as you vote, here's what I want to encourage you to remember that you uh, are in life together with people who may have common goals but who may, may, may make different decisions about how they vote. Um, so, for example, we could all agree that we worship a God of justice, that justice is critically important in our society, but we may not all agree, for example, on how to define issues of justice in our culture or the best way to solve those problems. We may not all agree. We're going to disagree, in fact, on some really important things. And so what we need to do is, is to walk together in humility and charity and faithfulness in that. Number five, in Christ we are on the right side of history, but we can be on the wrong side of issues. Okay? People love throwing that. You're all, you're, don't be on the wrong side of history. We don't have to worry about it. Okay? I'm just going to release you from worrying about that. You don't have to worry about it if you're on the right side of history. You are if you're a follower of Jesus because we know how the story begins and how it ends with Jesus as king. That's the right side of history, period. However, we do have to acknowledge that we as the church in a fallen world have not always been on the right side of issues. So American slavery being the prime example of this, right? 
There were pastors and churches and denominations that denounced slavery, and sadly, there were churches, much to the church's shame, pastors who did not deny it, but actually advocated for it. And so we need to acknowledge that, and we, again, need to walk in humility. We can be on the right side of history, but we can be on the wrong side of issues. Six, remember what we have in common in Christ is the most important. This is the last one. Our shared identity in life in Jesus is truer and deeper than any political difference we have. Let me say that again. We need to hold to this. Our shared identity in life in Christ, in Christ, is truer and deeper than any political difference we could possibly have. Our love for one another is evidence for the power and the truth of the gospel. It bears witness to our God. And so what I want to encourage you is if you find yourself speaking to your brothers and sisters in Christ more about things that are secondary or tertiary instead of gospel issues, if you find yourself fixated on something that's a matter of disagreement that is not a gospel issue, I want to encourage you to be careful because what you are at risk of doing is elevating something that is not essential and becoming divisive in the church. It may be something you're passionate about, and I understand that. But we have to be careful not to elevate it. And if by conscience you feel something is essential and it doesn't compromise the gospel, then what I would suggest is you bring it to the leadership of the church and say, I have a conviction about this, and I do think it's a first first order importance. And would you consider this and take a look at Scripture and, and, and discuss this and help me understand why it's not? Because we're in this together, and that's part of my role as a shepherd. But the answer may be, actually, no, it's not of primary importance for us as a community, even though it is for you. And so what that may mean is you either have to make a change and come to terms with that, or you may need to find a different church. And that's okay. Apostles is not the only church. There may be a place that more lines up with that passion or that conviction. And so I think if, if we'll just consider maybe those six kind of thoughts as we're looking forward to this next midterm election and really beyond as we're trying to engage politically um, year after year. I want to close with these words from Pastor Mark Dever, um, who serves at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., Uh, And he shared uh, these words at a teaching in advance of the 2020 election. And I just thought, I thought they were true no matter when you were living or what moment we find ourselves. This is what what he said. He said, I hope and pray, speaking to his congregation, he said, I hope and pray that your conscience will be shaped by God's word. We will give an account to God for how we use all that he gives us, our life, our money, our health, our love, our influence, our votes. So let's roll up our sleeves and do the hard work. Let's pray and let's study and let's live and let's love and let's realize that God may lead people around us that disagree with us so that we will be exercised in love. That one day when we are face to face with Jesus, we may come to understand their presence in our life has been more valuable than we could have possibly understood in the moment. Let's keep doing the daily tasks that God's called us to, knowing that the formation of character is long, hard work, and that we will benefit the next generation. Whatever lies ahead, I trust that God has good for us. And then he closed with these words. He said, uh, he said Mr. Clinton was reelected in 1996, and God remained on his throne. Mr. Bush was elected in 2000 and 2004, and God 
remained on his throne. Mr. Obama was elected in 2008 and 2012, and God remained on his throne. I think you can see where this is going, right? Donald Trump was elected in 2016, and God remained on his throne. And then he said, whoever gets elected in 2020, God will remain on his throne. Whoever gets elected, God will remain on his throne. We, the church, are the great fact of history, he said, not the American government. The United States is an experiment. The church is a certainty. Church, let us not trust in princes, but in the help of the God of Jacob. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.